0: For about half of the early emperors of Rome, once they died, the Senate would make them into a god. Literally. A temple and a priesthood would be established for them. For the rest of Roman history, emperors would make offerings to the great emperors of old, just as they would to Jupiter or Saturn. This deification wasn't a guaranteed thing. It was really up to the mood of your successor, and the Senate, at the time of your death. It's not a foolproof metric. Some Caracallas would sneak through the cracks, but... Otherwise, deification suggests that the emperor was good at their jobs and liked at the time of their death. Caesar was the first to be deified, and Augustus was deified after him. Livia, the first empress, would be deified decades after her death as well. After the first two Caesars, though, the deifications really wore thin. The only other Julio-Claudian emperor to be deified was Claudius. You can say all you want about Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian, and how they ruled, but the fact remains that Vespasian will be the first emperor since Claudius to be deified. This is the 96 AD Podcast, Episode 13. Those who deliberate and revolt have revolted already. The deification of Vespasian was therefore an indication that he was the first emperor in over two decades to leave a positive impact on the empire at the time of his death for this at the very least he should be celebrated the actual rule of Vespasian is still going to be a couple episodes away for now though we need to get through the civil wars in the last episode we ran through a list of all the bad things that Vitellius did during his reign and why he was just the worst for this episode we will talk through Vespasian's early life, rise to power, and his revolt. After this episode, we will fully understand the whole story of the Year of the Four Emperors. We aren't going to be done with the Year of the Four Emperors, though, but stay tuned for that. Now, on to the man of the hour. The family of Vespasian, the Flavians, was not influential imperial politics until his own generation. His grandfather and his father were both civilian administrators in the provinces, with no direct relationships with the royal family. Vespasian and his brother made their careers entirely on their own. Vespasian and his older brother, Sabinus, were born and grew up not far from Rome. Suetonius has a very sweet anecdote where Vespasian would always visit the villa he grew up in, and would always drink from a specific silver cup at important events. The nostalgia of the villa and the memory of his grandmother, who the cup belonged to, were very important to Vespasian. I find this telling as an insight into the personality of Vespasian, which is rare for us to get. Vespasian delayed joining politics until relatively late in his life. His older brother Sabinus had already become a senator, and Vespasian eventually felt forced to go into politics to live up to his older brother. Sabinus would eventually culminate his career as a prefect of Rome under Nero. This role could be described as being the mayor of the city. Vespasian, surprisingly, had a slow and unimpressive career. We have become, and will become even more used to, the idea that emperors had extraordinary careers. Vespasian, however, started late and progressed slowly. He was just so good at what he did that eventually he just reached the top. He became relatively successful under Gaius Caligula, getting some favor from the emperor by more or less sucking up to him. During Claudius' reign, Vespasian was dispatched to Britain and had lots of success there. He won dozens of battles, captured many cities, and was one of the most celebrated parts of the war. He was always known for measured and just rule during his governorships and his time in charge of legions, which definitely was a massive part of his character and his persona. He projected to the world that he was a measured and reasonable person, and this would eventually cause half the Empire to immediately support him in the Civil War. He would eventually fall out of favor with Nero, because of all things, he fell asleep during a performance, which is absolutely hilarious and exactly what we'd expect from Nero. He more or less had to retire as a response, and he was lucky that Nero didn't kill him on the spot. Perhaps this is just proving that Nero held him in high esteem, and so allowed him to live. Further proof of this is that years later, Nero would pull Vespasian out of retirement when a revolt started in Judea, as is an unfortunate trend in history, was being preyed upon by the totalitarian government and eventually, they armed themselves in revolt. They had outstanding success from the start, and immediate severe action was needed from the Empire. Nero felt that Vespasian had the perfect combination of skills to be put in charge of this conflict. For Nero, Vespasian was both a remarkable general and also extremely unlikely to revolt, the exact combination that you need from a man to be put in charge of a massive fighting force in a turbulent land. Vespasian didn't have many friends, He wasn't super aristocratic, and he had been out of politics for a couple years so far. All things considered, Nero was right about Vespasian entirely. He didn't revolt until there was nobody else left to revolt, and far into the civil wars, and Vespasian would eventually win the war. So, good job Nero. Vespasian had two sons, Titus and Domitian. Domitian, during the events of the civil war, was only around 18. Titus, on the other hand, was around 30. Domitian obviously had not yet done anything of consequence, again, he was only 18. Titus, though, was already slated for an extremely successful career. During the last days of Claudius, Titus was being educated alongside the emperor's son Britannicus, and Titus was supposedly at the very banquet near or beside his friend when Nero poisoned Britannicus. In a speech that I'll soon get into, Mucianus tells Vespasian that he personally would have adopted Titus as his heir had he become emperor himself. Titus would be so impressive that he will finish the suppression of the revolt in Judea all on his own. As for Vespasian himself, he seems to have never entirely been too ambitious. And in all honesty, it's more or less the case that Vespasian acted as a tiebreaker in the civil war. You could say that Vespasian's success came from the fact that the armies and generals in the west had been fighting for a year and were ripe for the pickings. Vespasian's Syrian legions would not have initially had the power to take the empire for himself. He couldn't have taken the empire at the time that Galba did. But he could capitalize on a weakened Vitellius after the Vitellian legions were weary of battle and willing to switch sides. It was due to these unique circumstances of the year of the four emperors and Vespasian's own personality that he was able to launch his revolt from Judea. At almost no other time in history would the Eastern legions be able to overthrow the emperor in Rome. It's just a logistical and financial impossibility. Vespasian's own revolt was only able to be launched because of a number of favorable reasons specific to him. Firstly, his troops were entirely and utterly devoted to him. His military career, in conjunction with the success so far in Judea, made his troops willing to follow him to the end of the world, or at the very least, Italy. Tacitus writes that when Vespasian declared support for Vitellius, his troops listened in silence, but voiced no support themselves. Secondly, Vespasian was able to stick around long enough in the east to create a large power base with almost all the eastern provinces. At the time of his revolt, he had been in the east for over three years. This isn't super long. Galba was in Spain for almost a decade, in comparison. But this was long enough for him to make friends with everyone on that side of the empire. He had instant support from Egypt, Syria, other eastern provinces, and the Balkans. So, clearly, three years was enough. Rarely would a governor have such a large reach over so many crucial provinces. If you think about it, at any time, Galba, Otho, or Vitellius could have appointed a new general in Vespasian's place. They could have replaced Vespasian with some die-hard loyalist to avoid any chance of revolt coming from there. If this was feasible, they certainly would have done it. Problem is that it's not. There are several massive problems with doing something like this. First, the simple logistical problem of swapping generals. The troops may not like it, and it would truly affect the war itself if the command structure is being overhauled in the middle. The bigger problem is that, despite the fact that Vespasian would be declaring support for each emperor, none of them truly knew what Vespasian was up to. Maybe he was always planning a revolt, maybe he didn't like them, and perhaps, saying a message to him, telling him he's fired, will cause him to revolt. For these reasons, it would be rare that crucial governors would be replaced. This is why it was so important for Lucius Virginius Rufus to personally go to Galba during his revolt. He was allowing Galba to replace him. Galba may not have had the ability to replace a governor in Germania Superior at this time, but Rufus allowed it to happen, which may have been the reason he was allowed to live, so each emperor in 69 AD had to accept Vespasian's support, and they simply had to hope that he was satisfied in Judea. Of course, what worked in favor of everyone in this situation was that Vespasian was actively in a war, It seemed obvious to each emperor that Vespasian could not launch his revolt while embroiled in a military conflict that he was suppressing. So, due to this, the sitting emperors of 69 AD could be fairly confident that Vespasian did not have the capacity for a revolt, and for a long time this was the case. So for Vitellius, there must have been multiple hurdles that Vespasian would have had to overcome to become really dangerous. First, he would need to create a coalition of a critical mass of provinces, Then, he would need to be able to abandon Judea. Finally, he would have to actually march all the way over the empire to Italy and destroy Vitellius' armies. Realistically, if Vespasian was only using his eastern legions, it might have taken a whole year to get over to Italy. And in that case, Vitellius might have had enough time to get it all together. But as we know, Vespasian would actually be able to achieve all of this with no problem. The first and last issue I discussed would be resolved for Vespasian by Vitellius himself. Vitellius was a terrible emperor, and the eastern provinces had no love for him. They were willing to revolt against him any time. Additionally, the Balkan legions had been loyal to Otho, and they personally hate Vitellius and the way he's been acting. And they hate Vitellius' armies. So they were ready to abandon Vitellius in favor of anyone reasonable at a moment's notice. So, Vespasian had more than ten legions to his name, with a considerable force right beside the Italian peninsula, ready to take on Vitellius. What maybe few expected was that Vespasian would be able to leave the war in the hands of his 30-year-old son. What maybe even fewer expected is that within a year of Vespasian's departure, Titus would successfully suppress the revolt. So at this time, Vespasian had everything he needed to lay out a revolt that would be successful. He just needed to be nudged in the right direction. It's hard to say how early in the Civil War is that Vespasian seriously considered throwing his hat in the ring, but what we can say for sure is that the moment Galba was hailed Emperor, It was clear that vespasian was in the top two or three most powerful people in the empire who could be hailed as emperor in the same manner and in the end he would become emperor in the exact same way that galba was Otho became emperor in a palace coup vitalis became emperor as a direct attack against galba from the armies under its control vespasian would revolt just as galba did it was a popular rebellion against a widely hated emperor both men were old and extremely decorated had a long outstanding career, had a massive unique power base away from the sitting emperor, not to mention that the sitting emperor would be dead before they even left. But, despite all this, Vespasian never felt an extreme need to revolt. The impression I get is that he was scared that if he declared against Vitellius and lost, he and his sons would be killed, which is true. It took an extreme amount of support from his allies to lead him to revolt, and he eventually had to be forced into it. Before I get into that though, I want to talk about this specific situation that Vespasian is in. The fact that the Romans despise the idea of kings should be quite familiar to you. What is an interesting consequence of this is the Roman tradition of being reluctant in taking considerable power. All the good emperors are described as being forced to become emperor in some way or another. For the good of the people, they reluctantly allowed someone else to hail them as emperor. On the other hand, the bad emperors are described as taking the title of emperor for personal reasons, the goodwill of the empire be damned. Of course, Vespasian carries on this tradition of reluctance in spades. In normal situations, we may doubt the reality of this reluctance. Many emperors would stage their coronations to seem more humble, to seem reluctant, like I believe Otho did, for example. Or maybe emperors would retroactively add into the history books that they were chosen by the people, rather than forcing themselves onto the emperorship. As for Vespasian though, the fact that he was unwilling to become emperor due to ambition really fits with his personality, and I wholeheartedly believe that Mucianus had to force him to do it. It is entirely true that Vespasian's dynasty would promote a certain type of history, and that history is what we see in our sources. Meaning that Vespasian tweaked the history books in favor of him and his dynasty, but I do not believe that this entire aspect of his personality is invented. In June of 69 AD, the procurator of Egypt, Alexander, already informed Vespasian of his support. In addition, portions of the Danube Balkan legions were also in support of Vespasian. Finally, Musianus in Syria was completely in Vespasian's camp. It turns out that the Vitellian rampage of all the troops in Italy ended up getting all the other soldiers in the empire to hate him. Because of this, Vespasian was more than ready to start the revolt. He just didn't want to. Tacitus relays a speech from Lucianus to Vespasian, and I'll read out a portion of it for you. It's a common part of the Roman historical tradition for the historian to fabricate speeches from the characters in their stories. So I know these exact words did not come from Lucianus' mouth, like how in the episode about Otho, those speeches were definitely not uttered by Otho, but something that Tacitus invented. But. This is how Tacitus imagined that these men talked and thought about their positions and about the war. So it's important because Tacitus is writing in the 90s AD. So he has a much better estimation of what their thoughts would be than we can ever imagine ourselves. He's much closer to the situation and he knew some of these men personally. Also, I have to relay it because it's a really fun speech. All who enter upon schemes involving great interests should consider whether what they are attempting be for the advantage of the state, or for their own credit. I invite you, Vespasian, to a dignity which will be as beneficial to the state as it will be honourable to yourself. Under heaven, this dignity lies within your reach. To persist in inaction and to leave the state in degradation and ruin would look like indolence and cowardice. The time has gone by and passed away when you might have endured the suspicion of having coveted imperial power. The power is now your only refuge. You have from Judea, Syria, Egypt, nine fresh legions, unexhausted by battle, uncorrupted by dissension. You have a soldiery hardened by habits of warfare and victorious over foreign foes. You have strong fleets, auxiliaries both horse and foot, kings most faithful to your cause, and an experience in which you excel all other men. And indeed, your vigilance, economy, and wisdom do not inspire me with greater confidence of success than do the indolence, ignorance, and cruelty of Vitellius. Once at war, we have a better cause than we can have in peace, for those who deliberate on revolt have revolted already. This speech gets into the heart of why Vespasian had to revolt. Messianus gets into the idea that Vitellius was just so pathetic as an emperor that the victory over him should be easy, that his troops are absolutely pathetic, and just how many people would instantly support anyone other than Vitellius. He also talks about how Unlike the revolt of Vitellius and Otho, and you could even say Galba, Vespasian would be launching his revolt for the good of the state. Vitellius is ruining the good name of the Roman people, absolutely trashing the dignity of the Roman legion and the title of emperor itself. For this then, Vespasian would be looked on preferably by his contemporaries and by history. Getting down to specifically why Vespasian had to revolt exactly when he did, we can talk about how Vespasian had been sending messages all around the empire. And it's only a matter of time before someone jumps the gun, turns on Vespasian, or Vitellius intercepts a letter. It would always be better to launch the Civil War on your own terms. Also, Vitellius, at this point, in his rule, is despised all around the Empire. It may be the case that, if he's able to stay in power for long enough, he'll slowly be able to replace governors with his cronies as term limits naturally end. Not to mention that the general population and legions may eventually lose their hatred for their emperor after long enough time on the throne. They'll just get used to him, or Vitellius may soon understand how to properly rule. Vitellius, at the moment, is still new to the emperorship, and he isn't creating any friends. Yet. Now is the best time to launch the revolt. Messianus says my favorite line, those who deliberate on revolt have revolted already. The idea that Vespasian deeply considered revolt for almost a year now and is simply waiting for the right time, the fact that he's preparing makes him treasonous, so it's better now than later to launch the revolt. After all, fortune favors the bold. On the 1st of July, the troops in Egypt swore allegiance to Vespasian. Over in Judea, Vespasian was forced to allow his troops to also declare him emperor. He's already being pushed forward as a candidate for emperor, so he has to go the whole way, since Vitellius will kill him the same regardless. So he has to start the civil war, he's forced into his rebellion. The troops in Syria followed not long after with their support. The initial proclaimment of the troops in Egypt was apparently not premeditated by Vespasian or Hermesianus, it was spontaneous. This, if true, shows that Vespasian literally needed to be put into a corner to revolt, that he wouldn't do it himself. Regardless of who or how it happened, though, Vespasian was now in revolt all the same, with the promised nine legions to his name. Lucianus was overjoyed that Vespasian was now in revolt, and immediately put his plan into action. The legions and provinces up into Turkey and Greece immediately sided with Vespasian. Titus was left to finish the war in Judea, and Vespasian set up his command in Alexandria. Like the plan laid out in Galba's revolt, the support of Egypt meant that in time, the Flavian troops would effectively siege the entire province of Italy by cutting off the food supply from Egypt and then sending legions in from the north. Musianus, as described by Tacitus, was acting as a colleague rather than a subordinate to Vespasian. He made the plan. He took the armies up to the Balkans himself. It was Mucianus who led the revolt. Vespasian simply started laying the groundwork for his administration in Alexandria and calling the top-level shots. Not long after, the legions in the Balkans started declaring support for Vespasian. A legate, Primus Antonius, took it upon himself to take the legions into Italy, and these would be the legions that would take out Vitellius. Shortly after this, legions in Spain and Britain also started declaring for Vespasian, Vitellius very rapidly became terrified, and frantically started preparing his troops for war. However, the absolute lack of discipline led the troops to become much less competent. It took them too long to band together, and they had all but forgotten how to truly fight the war. All they knew now was feasting and partying. Troops started mutinying and leaving Vitellius in favor of Vespasian. Now, we must recall that Sabinus was in the city of Rome. Sabinus was at the same time the mayor of the city and the brother of the usurping emperor. He was extremely dangerous and extremely powerful. Really quickly, Ordonius Flaccus, if you remember that governor from Germania Superior who was so unimpressive that his troops went and hailed Vitellius Emperor before him, was eventually killed in the chaos of shifting fortunes and allegiances. By October, the Vitellians were incurring massive defeats to the Flavian armies. After a decisive battle, the Vitellians started surrendering in large quantities. Less than 100 kilometers from Rome, the Vitellians were hit with another defeat on the 16th of December. When Vitellius heard the news, he knew there was no more fight left for him, and he was hoping to just give up. In the last days of Vitellius, there was only uncertainty and fear. Dio writes that Vitellius would, at one moment, be trying to figure out the best way to abdicate. Then the next moment, he would be ordering troops around the city so he could keep his emperorship. One moment he would be in his general's uniform holding up his sword, and the next he would be in inconspicuous clothing, ready to hide and sneak away from Rome. He would dismiss his guards, then a moment later hurriedly recall them. Vitellius had entirely lost his mind. He was defeated and broken. Dio explains that the result of his uncertainty and fear was that he instilled no confidence in anyone, considerably lowering his chances at success overall. In the end though, Vitellius sought out abdication. He just wanted to live. He and Flavius Sabinus organized an abdication and organized a seamless transfer of power. The Flavian and the Vitellian supporters gathered to hear about the abdication and to see the historic moment. Sabinus was there to oversee the abdication to ensure that it went properly. He was pretty much the second most powerful Flavian in the empire, so he had the authority to make this happen. Sabinus expected the Vitellian supporters to allow the abdication to happen. They knew what was going to happen, they knew it was coming, and everyone could respect Vespasian. But in fact, the Vitellian soldiers forced Vitellius to not abdicate and started to fight with the Flavian supporters in the forum. The result was thus. On the 18th of December, the Vitellians outnumbered and outgunned the Flavians, and were able to surround and besiege them on the Capitoline Hill. Vitellius, to his credit, I suppose, had no control over the army which fought under his name. He wanted to abdicate, to retire, to live, but his troops wanted to continue their debauched licentiousness. Recall that at this time, the young Domitian was in the city of Rome. We can say that Domitian's stay in Rome made him something of a political hostage, forcing Vespasian out in the provinces to stay loyal to the city emperor or else. Unfortunately for Domitian, Vespasian didn't stop the revolt on his account. This instantly put Domitian into immense danger. Sabinus was controlling the Flavians in the city, holding everyone up on the Capitoline Hill, and while besieged, Sabinus managed to get Domitian snuck into their camp so the Vitellian mob didn't seek him out and kill him. This would have been the first true interaction with the civil war that Domitian had. He had been in the capital the whole year, so he saw three emperors come and go. He was around when Nero fled, when Galba arrived, when Otho launched his conspiracy, and when Vitellius marched into the city, trumpets blaring. For all those times, he had nothing to fear, since thus far Vespasian had been quite well-behaved, serving out in the provinces, fighting a war for the empire. Now, though, his family members were the usurpers, and suddenly found himself in a squabble within the capital. The next day... Sabinus tried to negotiate with Vitellius, but was disappointed to find out that Vitellius had nothing to do with the mob that was besieging them, and couldn't call it off. When a Flavian army tried and failed to take the city, the Vitellians in Rome responded by storming the Capitoline Hill and massacring the Flavians. Here, Sabinus was executed, and many other Flavian allies were arrested or executed themselves. Domitian barely escaped. The exact details of the escape are impossible to tell, since this was one of the main stories that Domitian liked to tell about himself, and it was exaggerated accordingly. However it happened, Domitian snuck off the hill and hid in either a friend's house or a local temple for several days. And in the end, it really would only take a couple days for Domitian to be in the clear. Flavian soldiers poured into the city and overwhelmed the dwindling Vitellians. The city broke and anarchy took hold. Pillaging and murder were rampant and the Flavian troops made no real attempt to quell the nightmare. Recalled that it was only that one legate from the Balkans that was controlling the army, Primus Antonius. Musianus and Vespasian were nowhere to be found at the moment. They were still months away. Vitellius hid himself in his most inconspicuous clothes and fled all on his own. He tried to blend in with the crowds, but was eventually spotted. The Flavian troops found the emperor, killed him, and disposed of his body in the Tiber. It was the 20th of December, 69 AD, and the Emperor of Rome was dead. Half an empire away, in Alexandria, Vespasian learned of the success of his armies, and the establishment of him as the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. At the moment, nobody knew it, but this would mark the end of the Civil War. The year 69 AD started with the Emperor Galba, and on the 1st of January, the Rebellion of Vitellius was launched. Halfway through January, Otho overthrew Galba and became emperor. Vitellius' rebellion continued nonetheless and led Otho to a suicide in the middle of April. Vitellius then reigned alone until the 20th of December when he was killed. It is with no exaggeration and with no technicality that this has been a year of four emperors. And what a year it has been. Revolt, conspiracy, murder, and anarchy. This year is fitting of its ominous name. Now, finally... After so much warm bloodshed, we will have an entire decade with but a single emperor in Rome. That will be all for this episode. For now though, if you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions about the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 96AD subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast and episode description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I will respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a Paypal donate button. This is not required or expected, this podcast will remain free, and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production, and will support me, a student, who is attempting to study, work, and produce this podcast all at once. Before we part today, I want to add that all of this does seem rather incomplete. We have introduced Vespasian, and we have talked through his life up to the 20th of December 69, We have covered all of the Year of the Four Emperors, but we went all the way from Vitellius to Vespasian's sole rule in a single episode. So next episode, we're gonna fill in the gaps. Tacitus wrote a lot about the war fought between Vespasian and Vitellius, and I will summarize and comment on it next time. It's an engaging battle, and I'll get fully into the military aspect of Roman history. And now we both have the background needed to fully understand and appreciate the history behind it. So we can delve into the details. It's important to get into the specifics of this civil war because it will motivate the type of administration that Vespasian will run, and who will be a part of it. The way in which the war is conducted, and especially in the way it's concluded, will define the first few years of Vespasian's reign and Domitian's career. So, next episode, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the war between Vitellius and Vespasian. I'll see you then.